Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, This is going to be an interesting episode because after we get through talking trash and some other News of the Week stuff, we are going to talk about this case in front of the Supreme Court, Moore v. Harper, which is the independent state legislature theory case. Uh, We have talked about it briefly in the past. Um, We actually did an episode where it was myself and Grace where I scared the absolute hell out of Grace talking about this. Uh, Ravi and I will talk about it now. I coming at it as a former Secretary of State. Ravi coming at it as a a very uh, learned uh, scholar of the law school of of Yale. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. But actually, as somebody who has actually been studying and following this case very closely uh, is the perspective you'll be coming from. So that'll be exciting. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, uh, shall we talk some trash? Well, I just want to hear, like, we're heading into the holidays. Like this is this is a prime banter real estate, Jason. I want to hear what's happening in your world right now. Uh, let's see what's happening in our world. Is it's a lot of questions from True uh, about like like playing twenty questions about what presents he is and is not getting. We oh do God. a thing which people may see as somewhat Scroogeish. I don't know where we don't actually do presents for our for our kids on birthdays and uh, Christmas and Hanukkah and stuff because. Uh, their grandparents get them stuff. And also at this age, like for birthdays, like they just get showered with gifts by their yeah. friends. And our what we tell them is like, hey, uh, we throw you a birthday party and it costs money. Mm-hmm. So you and he's very cool with that. So instead, he knows that what really happens is we tell his grandparents what to get him and then they go get it for him. And so he's just been it's been the the inquisition around here of him trying to figure out. And he actually he actually guessed one of them this morning and oh, Diana's nice. face betrayed that fact and he he was very excited so that's that's the sport does, around here right does now. he still believe in santa claus or did he know it's actually a, a hilarious story i'm glad you asked here's why he really never went in for the santa claus thing he believed in it for a very brief period of time but he was very skeptical he had lots of questions about it and then what happened was his grandmother and so diana's parents uh decided they were going to be santa claus so um, my mother-in-law came in and was like, Hey, I saw Santa Claus outside. And she <laughs> like, okay. And then my father-in-law came in and like had some gifts. We have a hilarious video of it. And he also, like, Santa Claus was like, this package was also at your door. Oh, and I got your mail and, and everything it was in a full Santa Claus costume. Here's the thing. My in-laws are from Ukraine and oh, like, no. He's like they, a Ukrainian accent. They have a rather distinctive accent <laughs> in, in our neighborhood, right? You know? And so when they left, True just looks at us and goes, Santa Claus sounded a lot like grandpa. And uh, and so that's really why he never went in for the Santa Claus oh thing. Oh my God. 
Oh my God. Well, if you take a look on the internet there, you know, this chat GPT that everybody's playing around with now, the AI chat, somebody had the AI explain to their kid that Santa Claus didn't exist from Santa Claus's perspective. It's really beautiful, right? Oh, I got to check that Shout out. out to the AI. I got to check that Shout out. out to the AI. That's the Sam Altman thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can I, really quick sidebar before we get to your holiday uh, banter, is that I sat down with Sam Altman, I think it was 2017, 2018, and we're he's from Missouri. So we are sort of friendly, you know, and, and I was out there in, in Silicon Valley. I sat down with Sam Altman and he said something that I will never forget to me. He said, at some point in the next decade, there are going to be so many robots in our lives because this AI stuff is advancing so quickly and they're going to play such a huge part in our lives. He was like, Americans are going to look around and feel like aliens have invaded. Mm. And I just, I, I wanted to just put a pin in that because I wanted other people to have that in their mind, because I guess that's coming. He didn't say it like it was a bad thing. He was just like, it's going to become so quickly a part of our lives. So anyway, that said, now that I've said that terrifying thing, uh, (laughs) what what are your holiday plans? Mine is very simple. I'm heading Friday to Costa Rica. And you know what's crazy is this little town in Costa Rica now, because I've been going there every few years, tons of Majority 54 listeners. So people stop me on the beach all the time and talk to me about Majority 54. That's awesome. It's possible that like outside of Missouri, the highest concentration of listeners we have is possibly in this one little town. It's like expats? It's like expats? A lot of expats, even Costa Ricans too. Yeah. And obviously I created a Spanish language podcast, The Lost Debate. Uh You know, so that's also like, popular with some people down there. So, but yeah, I'll be gone for a while. I'll be gone for like six weeks, maybe two and a half months, depending on what's going on here. The show will go on. I mean, anybody who really listens to this knows that it doesn't matter where Ravi travels. We keep going. All right, let's talk some trash. Um, Elon Musk did some things. Where do we start here? So he was booed on stage Sunday at a Chappelle show, like apparently for like an insane amount of time, like could not get his, like, you know, get a word in because the audience was so upset at him, which is really notable because Chappelle has his own kind of heterodox audience who you'd imagine could be, would be a sympathetic audience to Musk. If you've ever seen one, uh, Musk also has just been taking to the platform to tweet some really strange and erratic things. He said his, uh, pronouns are prosecute Fauci He's just he's just been putting out a bunch of crazy stuff. He also banned um, the Elon Jet account, which is an account that has been tracking his private jet, even though he, back in November, said his commitment to free speech meant that he wasn't going to ban that account. So that's one thing in a series of broken promises from Elon Musk. So in general, it's just, there's a whole lot happening in Musk world, but it's just another chapter in the erratic Elon Musk saga. And this happens at a time when uh, the stock of Tesla is tanking. It's dropped 28% since he took over Twitter. So things don't seem to be going great over there. I'll be honest, Twitter has been a lot less fun. I, I'm using it a lot less. I'm thinking about like how I can do more stuff on Instagram that is sort of more like what I used to do on Twitter. You know, like how it used to be like, you know, I didn't opine about politics hardly at all on Instagram. And now I'm like, well, I guess that's kind of where I'm going to do that. Because it's and the reason I feel like it's there's a lot of reasons I feel like it's less fun, but one is that it used to be that uh you know you would say something politically and it was like, yeah, you would maybe hear people disagree with you, but what you didn't immediately get unless it was picked up by somebody from the other side and like quote tweeted, you didn't get like the far right wing and like the invective and the nastiness like automatically, right? Yep. 
you know, and I get some of that because I have some hate followers, but you know, I, I don't have as many hate followers. Like, you know, if you look at every time Hillary Clinton has ever tweeted anything, there's, there's millions of people who hate follow her and, right. and th there are people like that. But now I'm getting a lot more of that. And I, I think, you know, the theory that I've heard that it makes a lot more sense to me is that in order to get more engagement, what Musk is doing is he's having tweets from people like us show up in the feeds, whether they follow or not, of people who follow people like Ben Shapiro. And mm -hmm. and so because he just wants to juice the engagement numbers uh, to try and get advertisers back. And it's it's got me using the platform a lot less because I'm like, it'd be one thing if it were people like, I would enjoy it if it were like less of an echo chamber and there were more conservatives being like, well, no, hold on, think about this. But it's not. It's like I tweet some random thing and people are like, yeah, well, that's because you're a Jew. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, like this is not fun. So well, they don't get the they, they think about free speech in terms of allowing the worst common denominator onto the platform, which we can argue forever about where to draw the line. Right. But what they don't seem to pay any attention to is free speech part of what it means to in, embrace free speech is is there is, it's a means to an end of having a fruitful dialogue mm -hmm. and what i see from musk is that he doesn't spend any time trying to make the dialogue on this platform better right so like let's say he wanted he's like look i have a rad, i have a, a purely libertarian view on free speech so no matter how offensive your views are you're welcome here but that doesn't mean I encourage it, and it doesn't mean I want to engage in it. But what he does is he he spends all of his time trolling left wing people now, and we were we've been treated to all this nonsense, and he now has these Twitter files and all this, and I've covered this elsewhere. But the the, the presumption is the old regime of Twitter and and other media companies are liberal, and it's part of the evidence is they donate to Democratic candidates, yada yada yada. But left out of the discussion is Musk. The CEO of the company has openly embraced the GOP, told his people to vote for Republicans in the midterm, said he's going to vote for DeSantis in the future, and just seems to spend all of his time trolling left-wing people. I'm like, you're doing nothing to make this place more inviting to people like us. You know, it's it's that old misconception um, that comes from the right wing that making things less regulated and more chaotic equals freedom. And right. that, that freedom is simply a, an expression of there being fewer guardrails, even, you know, like the idea that it's more free when there aren't EPA regulations. Well, it's like, except you're less free to drink the water, right? And so it's it's interesting how it actually really mirrors that whole debate and like the whole debate about the nature of, of our economy and of capitalism. Like that's the big debate, right? Sometimes you have to have guardrails. You have to have smart regulations in order to create a greater degree of freedom for small businesses as opposed to huge monopolies. And, and that's like, to your point, freedom of speech is not a good in and of itself, right? right? Like it is good when, I mean, certainly when we, when we think about it in terms of the, uh, the government not stepping in and, and regulate, that's one thing. But when you talk about it from a private actor perspective, like it's the, it's the difference between like trying to build a culture and being like, mm, the culture is the strongest person survives, right? Like right. state of nature, like technically the state of nature is freedom. But right. you're way more likely to be brutally murdered in the state of nature, and therefore you are you have less freedom of movement. 
Yeah, your point about capitalism makes me think often. I spend a lot of time with libertarian-leaning people of all political stripes, and there are different types of libertarians out there, whether I agree with them or not on on what they're advocating for. There's the Ayn Rand type of libertarian who's like, all right, I don't want government in my business, and they they often use purely selfish rationale. They're like, I just want people don't mess with me. I want to be on my own. And they don't frame it in in any sense of the collective good. And then there are other libertarians I know who are like, I go to my church, I donate a lot of money to charity, I you know maybe believe in public benefit corporations, and I want to look out for my neighbor. I just happen to think government is not the right mechanism to bring us together, but I do want to have a collective experience and culture. And those people I find the most interesting because they're like, look, this is a means to an end. I still believe in a society in which we have strong ties to each other. I just have a different theory of how we get there. That to me is a really interesting, cool discussion and debate where we meet on common ground in many ways. But I feel like this free speech is like a corollary to the former, though. like these people who are just like, it is the end, as you're saying. And that's obviously not true. We're seeing that now with Twitter. That version of the libertarian that you're describing reminds me of this thing that happened, I remember, in my first year of law school. I was in my constitutional law class. And there was this uh, guy, he has like a real job now, so I won't use his last name, this guy, Dan. And he said this thing uh, where some, somebody was talking, they were, it was like the head of the Federalist Society. And they were, they were talking about, I don't remember what, but they were espousing libertarianism and what all the problems were in this case we were talking about because they should just take a libertarian approach. And it was a throwaway line that the class just kept going, this thing Dan said, but I never forgot it. He goes, you know, I've noticed that the vast majority of libertarians I meet are wealthy and white mm-hmm. and pretty good looking. <laughs> and and he goes, and then he goes, he goes, and you know, I just never feel surprised when they say they don't think they need the government to do anything for them. Yeah. And, and I just have never forgotten that. Now, I know that that's not true of all libertarians, but that brand of libertarian you're talking about does skew wealthy, white, and good looking. And it's not yeah. hard to see how they feel like, you know, everything I did, I did without the government. Well, the wealthy and white part checks out for me. The good looking, I, I've yet to see, but, you know. <laughs> This is a time of year when people are interacting with family members they haven't seen in a while. In general, it's also a time when maybe the weather's a little rougher and people really struggle sometimes this time of year. And that's why I like the Calm app. Like this is my go-to wellness app and it has all these really cool tools that help you reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve your focus with curated music tracks and rest and recharge with their imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. You know, I have these speakers in my room and I put my phone in a different room and then I put on the Calm app while I go to sleep and it's the best way to fall asleep. That is a perfect endorsement. I'm already a Calm fan, but I mean, if I weren't, I would be doing what I hope our audience is doing, which is running out to calm.com slash M54, where they can get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash M54. Go to calm.com slash M54 for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash M54. I wouldn't characterize my house as one that's like real strict, but there is one place in the house where I'm like pretty much a tyrant. I really don't want anybody to jump on my bed. My Helix mattress, and I'm sure that it's perfectly resilient. I'm sure it would have no problem with, you know, my nine-year-old jumping on the bed, but I am like, I'm not going to chance it. So once a week, 
True and I have an argument where he's jumping on the bed and I'm like, man, I have told you, there's no, there's so few things in this house I consider sacred. Please don't jump on this mattress. You know, you and I separately took this Helix sleep quiz and they help you find the perfect mattress for you in under two minutes. What they're doing right now is pretty awesome is they're offering a hundred night risk-free trial. So you could try out this mattress, see how everybody adjusts. And if you decide it's not the best fit for you, you're welcome to return it for a full refund. And so they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. You can go to helixsleep.com slash majority 54 with Helix. Better sleep starts now. So let's talk about the big news item of the week that I'm getting a lot of questions about, which is Kirsten Cinema, senator from Arizona, has decided to leave the Democratic Party and become an independent. This is potentially earth shattering, depending on who you talk to, or totally unsurprising. Where are you on the spectrum? Uh, totally unsurprising. And we will have to see whether or not it proves to be very disruptive, uh, which is, I think, her goal. Yes. Because it, it has everybody going, it's like this game of chicken, right? It's basically her going, 100%. Okay, you can run somebody against me, uh, you know, American left or Arizona left. But just so you know, I'm going to go be an independent. I'm taking us all down with me because there'll be a bunch of Democrats. That's her theory. There's a bunch of Democrats that vote for me and a bunch of Democrats that vote for you, and you'll just be electing a Republican. Uh, and so that's, I think, what she's trying to do. She's trying to play a game of chicken with frankly, with, with Ruben Gallego. And yep. I, I have to say, that's one of the last people in the world I would try to play a game of chicken with. Because um, I don't think you win. <laughs> I think, you know. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that she's incredibly unpopular with Democratic voters. The last poll I saw with the civics poll had her at 7% approval among <laughs> wow. Arizona Democrats. I bet Trump has a better approval among Arizona Democrats than that. This is a state that's very evenly split amongst Democrats, Republicans, and independents, 35% of Arizona registered voters are Republican, 34% independents, 31% Democrats. Obviously, independents are complicated. Sometimes they always vote for the same party. Some of them are more eclectic and switch parties. Some of them um, ticket split. We do know that a lot of those independents have been trending Democratic over the last few cycles. Obviously, we got two senators and the governor now, and we also have Adrian at the Secretary of State's office. So you know, we've been doing well in this state. The question I think for a lot of us and the Arizona Democrats are going to have to answer is how likely is cinema to run? And this might be an unanswerable question. How likely is she to run if Gallego doesn't blink? And there's another part of me that's like, well, do you just run him? Because cinema, if you look at the raw numbers, cinema running as an independent probably can't win either. So like, let's say Gallego didn't run. The numbers are terrible for her. Right. Mm -hmm. Like even among independents, she suffered a lot. And Lord knows, like, it's going to be hard to convince Democrats to show up to vote for her. You know, she's not McMullen in Utah. This is somebody with a lot of baggage. The Atlantic had a really good article about the grassroots organizers who helped her get elected last time and just how offended they are by the about face that Cinema did. Because Cinema ran as a leftist candidate not too long ago. She was a was green. Yeah. Early on. So it's like, it shows she relied upon these grassroots organizers to win a very narrow race. It's going to be a hard sell to get those people to do anything to lift a finger to help her win next time. So I say Ruben should run. We should put him on the pod soon. I know he's been on the pod before. We should get him on the pod and ask him directly, break some news at Majority 54. But my sense is he's going to run. 
I think that's probably the right move. The only way to deal with schoolyard bullies is to call them on their bullshit. And I think we lose if she is in by herself. And I think we lose if she's in in a three-person race. So we might as well just put the candidate out here and try to force her out. Yeah, I I really appreciated Ruben's response when he was asked about it. Like he didn't mess around. He didn't play politics. He was like, so what, you know, why do you think she became an independent? And he goes, because she thinks I'm going to beat her in a primary. He was, yep. It was just like very, Absolutely. very matter of fact. And that's exactly, that's exactly right. And I, I guess there's a world in which she could go out and attract a certain number of voters by, you know, being like, well, I'm independent minded and I'm all that. But it's like pretty hard to see with her particular politics, who the voter is for her, right? Because like, she hasn't really done anything. She's done things to ingratiate herself to Republican senators, but she hasn't done much to ingratiate herself to Republican voters, right? right? And then at the same time, what's the, like, one of the top issues that caused independents to go with Democrats in the last election? It was stuff like democracy. And it was stuff like, you know, needing to protect the right to choose. And the argument that she has stood in the way of so much of that stuff with her incalcitrance, is that the word? I'm really going out on a limb here. With her unwillingness to, um, to actually, and you should Absolutely, Grace, leave me searching for the word in the thing, because why not? We do have that English teacher who likes to comment yeah, on grammar. Yeah. So if she's listening, please send us a voicemail. Good point. I would love to hear about whether I even said that word correctly or used it correctly. But, uh, you know, it's democracy issues and it's the filibuster. And so whether it's choice or or anything else, like she hasn't really done much to ingratiate herself, herself to independent voters. So, and no. we know the Democrats are done with her. So I think my prediction here is that Ruben will jump out and run hardcore. Um, there may be other Democrats too. I think, I think Ruben will probably be the nominee. Uh, in my opinion, he should be. And, and I think ultimately she's going to be like, yeah, you know, I gave this a shot. I think I'm going to go lobby or go to corporate boards or whatever. Yeah, and it's one thing that she frames herself as an independent, but we've talked about this before. You look at where she's getting her money, big pharma, private equity. She did that carve out for the private equity you know, tax that we, that we were supposed to get. She's dependent. Yeah. <laughs> she's the opposite of independent. Well said. Now the the that's a great line that should absolutely be used if if Ruben runs against her. The tricky part of this whole thing, though, is for Schumer because <laughs> mm-hmm. he was informed of her plans on Thursday and said that Cinema asked to keep her committee assignments. And I don't envy where Schumer is here because he's got this 51-seat majority. And I think he's going to allow her to keep her assignments. And I don't begrudge Schumer no. for allowing this. But one thing we've got to be damn sure of is like we should try to get her to commit to continue caucusing with Democrats like in the event of her running and winning again or whatever, even if it doesn't commit us to supporting her. Because what's going to happen is – in the very unlikely event that she runs, wins as an independent, and Republicans have a very good shot for reasons we've described before of taking back the Senate because we've got some really tough seats to defend, then she'll caucus with the Republicans, right? And so, like, let's get her to talk through this. Like, we've been burned before, West Virginia, for example, where the governor switched parties. Like, this this stuff happens, you know? And so, I think we should hold her feet to the fire to clarify her intentions. I agree. And I don't blame Schumer either, because look at the situation he's in, not even prior to the election, right? Like she's not an independent, she's an opportunist. I mean, that's what she's shown at every point in her career. She has just changed what she's for in order to match what presents the greatest next opportunity for her or to get her out of a corner she's painted herself into. And, and so if you, if you're Schumer and you punish her for this, 
Well, McConnell is just going to be like, hey, I'll offer you all sorts of stuff, right? You know, I'll, I'll give you things. And boom, she's an independent who caucuses with the Republicans. And now you're back to a 50-50 Senate where you have to do power sharing and all sorts of stuff. So it's there's you gain nothing by by coming down on her here. And I'm sure she figured that out ahead of time. But it is pretty cynical. Well, Jason, I'm hopping on a plane Friday to head off to Costa Rica, and I'm going to be loading up my bag with Athletic Greens. I'm a little concerned that the folks at the TSA may stop me from bringing so much powdered substance on an airplane and a carry-on, so I may break my rule and check a bag uh, because I care that much about Athletic Greens. That, I mean, that's that's like a strong statement to check a bag to make sure your AG1 is there. I'm in no way surprised and I fully endorse that that decision. I think that's exactly it's as you were describing it I was thinking, "Oh, he needs to check a bag. That's really important." Okay, let me let me tell the new listeners here. Uh, what's Athletic Greens AG1? This is 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens to start your day right. And it's wonderful. And what's really cool is they're giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Dave is a banking app for which there are many reasons to have very warm feelings. Let me tell you one reason that I have a very warm feeling for Dave. In the movie Penguins of Madagascar, John Malkovich's character is an octopus hell-bent on revenge, and his name is Dave. And this is one of my son's favorite movies and has been since he was a little kid. And I have very fond memories whenever I think of Dave, whenever I use Dave, the app, of calling up my son when he was about three years old on the phone when I'd be on the road and, and, and I would imitate Dave and we would have a conversation. And then five minutes later, I would call as me and True would say, Daddy, I talked to Dave again. And it was just amazing. But it's also a banking app that can help you get up to $500 instantly. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit checks. That's more money to buy those last minute gifts or catch up on bills without having to wait for your next paycheck. So download the Dave app from the app store right now or go to dave.com slash m54 sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly for terms and conditions go to dave.com slash legal instant transfer fees apply banking services provided by evolve bank and trust member of the fdic all right with all that said, with the news of the week and the trash out of the way and that kind of thing, the trash being the talking trash, I'm not calling someone trash. Uh, let's get into uh, Moore versus Harper. People have probably seen, Ravi, some headlines about it. We've talked about the independent state legislature theory and how scary it is a little bit on this show in the past. With that said, say smart things, Ravi, go. <laughs> well, okay. This is a case where a lot of people are saying this could lead to the state legislatures being able to basically overturn the will of the electorate and send their own electors and cause all sorts of havoc and install a Trump over the will of the electorate. And so I'll get to that claim. But the, the proximate issue here is the Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in this case and involves redistricting by the Republicans who control both chambers of the North Carolina General Assembly. And earlier this year, the state Supreme Court in North Carolina voting in line with its 4-3 Democratic majority, which was at the time a Democratic majority, but not a Democratic majority anymore, that court ruled that the legislature's congressional map 
was a partisan gerrymander that violated the North Carolina Constitution. Now, ordinarily, that would be the end of the matter because it's the state constitution interpreting state law, which there's a longstanding principle that the Supreme Court generally does not wade into matters where the state court is interpreting state law. So that is where we are. It makes its way to the Supreme Court because the Republicans are challenging their own state Supreme Court decision, and their justification for it is this thing called the independent state legislature theory. And this this theory has never been adopted by a majority of the Supreme Court. It's shown up in various concurrences and whatnot, including in Bush v. Gore. And essentially what it means is the U.S. Constitution has a clause called the Elections Clause that says the time, place, and manner of holding elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the North Carolina Republicans interpret that to say, hey, the Supreme Court says the legislature, not the state Supreme Court, not the governor, determines the time, place, and manner of elections. Therefore, if the Supreme Court is trying to tell the legislature how to gerrymander, that is a violation of the U.S. Constitution. And now that question is up before the United States Supreme Court right now. So the other thing about this is is that it's like a lot of years that state Supreme Courts have been weighing in on elections and decisions about elections made by state legislatures. And so if you were to go with this theory, you're basically saying for the last 200 years, we've been doing it wrong in like every state. Including a case in 2019 called Rucho versus Common Cause, which also originated in North Carolina. Chief Justice Roberts at the time, writing for the conservative majority, declared that federal ca- courts had no authority to review cases concerning partisan gerrymandering. And he said in this case, quote, provisions in the state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply. So this is all jargon, yada, yada, yada. But essentially he's saying, yes, the state courts provide the way here. And so we'll be looking to him, but obviously he doesn't determine everything here. But let me take a step back and say, all right, the biggest claim being made here is that if the conservative majority of the Supreme Court, and there are some of them who flirted with this theory before, including some like Clarence Thomas, who's openly endorsed it before in certain cases, if they adopt this theory, it will lead to anti-democratic moves by state legislatures where they can overturn presidential election results. So let's take that theory first. I'm a little less persuaded that this is the likely outcome, in part because state legislatures can only pick their electors before the votes are cast. So federal law requires states to choose their electors on election day. So the only way this scenario would come into effect is if the state legislatures adopt like convoluted processes to pick their electors before the elections happen in ways that are stacked in favor of one party or another. Now, it's not impossible, but it's not the same as what I think is being posited in public, which is like that, all right, the electorate votes, and then the state legislature meets and doesn't like the results and sends a different type of electors. From what I gather, that is not likely to happen. But there are other problems here, but I'll just pause there because there are other major issues that will arise if they adopt this theory. I, I agree that that's very unlikely to happen in the decision in Morby Harper. But the problem is, is that the decision in Morby Harper can leave the door open for that to happen and if it it cracks that door open, so it's 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 like you know just this week we had um, the Congress have to pass a law to to codify same sex marriage and marriage equality, right? Um, because in Dobbs, there's language in uh, Clarence Thomas's concurrence that pretty well says you know we can use this logic 
to come after uh, marriage equality. Well, that that seems very analogous to me because if you have a result in this case that is about allowing the Republicans in North Carolina to get what they want and to go and to you know do the math however they want without the state Supreme Court coming in, well, now the next time you bring a independent state legislature theory case, like if a let's say a state legislature does like a pre-election election within the state legislature and picks electors based on who they're going to choose in the electoral college. Yeah. Well, now you have it ripe and you can use this as precedent and say, we build on this. And so it, to me, it's very similar, but it's like a two step. And that's what, what frightens me about it. it by the way, if people are listening right now and they're confused uh, about uh, the Republicans in North Carolina wanting the federal government to step in you are right to be confused. This yes. is this is quite literally the Republican argument here is is in general states. Uh, you know the federal government has no power over elections. The federal government can't tell states how to do elections, except in cases where the state supreme court tells the legislature not to do something. Then only the federal government can correct the legislature. It's pretty hard to follow. Yeah, and one thing we know for sure, so now let's talk about what we know will, will for sure be bad about this decision, is that it will effectively insulate partisan gerrymanders from legal challenges, maybe even racial gerrymanders from legal challenges, and it'll undo ballot measures to create independent redistricting commissions, it'll strip certain states of their voting rights protections that state courts have institutionalized. So that we know for sure. Now, what's fascinating about- Well, hold on, let's, because we went over that quickly, like I want to underline that, like- all of the progress that's been made in places like Michigan and elsewhere to have independent redistricting commissions to take it out of the hands of the state legislature, those could go away completely. Those would not stand up to constitutional muster if this is the if this is the standard, right? Uh, because it wouldn't be the state legislature that did it. Uh, so that'd be gone. Uh, and then the other piece to give people background on it is there has been an attempt for several years. Uh, and if people want to get deeper into this, then go back to the other episode we did about this, uh, where Grace and I talked about the independent state legislature theory. There's been an attempt for several years to get the Supreme Court to recognize political gerrymandering as you know wrong, as 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 an abuse of the equal protection clause. And over and over, the Supreme Court has, and at times, come very close to doing that. But over and over, and the Supreme Court would never do it. They just keep saying, no, it has to be racial gerrymandering for us to strike it down. And your point is a good one, which is no matter the progress you make on that and what states choose to do, this would pretty well lock lock down the possibility of ever making political gerrymandering against the law. Yeah. And there's an irony here. Harvard Law School professor, this guy, Nicholas Stephanopoulos, ran a series of simulations projecting what would happen if the Supreme Court adopts this theory and each state can just gerrymander at will. And he concluded that nationwide, North Carolina is more of an exception than the rule and that Democrats would actually benefit more than Republicans. Because if you think about it, New York, we had this state Supreme Court overturned. Maps are very favorable to Democrats. California is independent uh, redistricting commissions. Mm, you got point. all these commissions. So what he found is actually that the Republicans will be hurt by this. Now, like, if we take him take him as given, which that seems to make some sense for me as somebody who follows New York and California, it's still bad. Like we don't want these gerrymanders. Like I, I'm a believer that voters should choose their politicians, not the other way around. Uh, and there's some really good stuff if people want to get wonky on this. You may be asking, well, this theory, like what is it about this theory? Like 
like how could they embrace this? And there's been some really good scholarship on this. Will Bode and Michael McConnell, who are two sort of conservative leaning uh, legal thinkers, wrote an article in the Atlantic, and they basically talk about how look. The state legislature is not like some entity that exists in a vacuum, right? If they decided to like totally disregard their constitution and, you know, like basically turn themselves into a dictatorship, meet and pass bills at whichever way they choose, et cetera, like nobody would argue that they can just ignore their state constitution. We we come to believe that courts, whether it's the state Supreme Court or the Supreme Court itself, they tell us what the law is within a state. Like that's just how it exists. Like the state legislature doesn't exist independent of the courts. The same is true of the very Supreme Court that is ruling on this case. Like you went to law school, you know that one of the first cases they teach you is Marbury versus Madison. The very act of the Supreme Court telling the rest of us what the law is and having that enforced is not something that's like spelled out, right? We just have come to all accept that. So if I were this court, I'd be a little careful at stripping the state court of their rights and abilities to say what the law is, because this very Supreme Court is relying upon a very similar understanding. That, I think, is one of the saving graces here uh, for us, which is that judges like to go to things with other judges. And I talked about this a little while ago on the show, that that they like to go to the golf tournament and be the big time judge and have the other judge. And there's a collegiality there, even among hack judges, I think. So to to go out and say you state supreme court judges have absolutely no authority in this that's a big limb to go out on just in the world of being a judge in the social structure of you know of the legal profession. Who was it? Was it was it Jackson who said it? You know, Supreme Court Justice Marbury made his decision, let's see him enforce it or whatever. Like who was it who said that? Somebody in history, a president was just like, "Hey, Supreme Court, I'm going to ignore you." Like we got to be careful because this stuff is very possible if the Supreme Court goes out on a limb here. That's the th- is to maintain your legitimate legitimacy as a Supreme Court, you have to you do always have to keep in mind that you don't have an army to enforce this stuff. And there has to be an investment by people who lead other branches in the idea that these institutions matter and these norms matter. That's the great breakdown that brought us so close to the to the precipice with the Trump administration is that really Roberts was the only person left at the head of a of a branch of government that seemed to care about what happened after they left. Right. Like McConnell was like, whatever. He was really not willing to enforce any norms. Trump didn't care. And so yeah, like they have to be careful with that. Well, here's my prediction. They're going to find, and if you listen to the oral arguments, you could hear that there are certain Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito all seem to be very sympathetic to this theory. Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett seem to be the swing votes. And Roberts, in his questioning, seemed to be searching for a way to overrule the North Carolina Supreme Court decision without embracing the state uh, independent state legislative theory. And we need to be careful here because I think a lot of people would celebrate that as a win and be like, all right, like they're not embracing this radical theory. But my theory on this is that is the most partisan decision they could make. Because remember the Stephanopoulos analysis that I talked about. If they embrace this theory, as bad as it is for our democracy, it's good for Democrats. So part of them don't want to embrace this theory because I think they realize it's bad for Republicans. But if they can find a way to overrule the North Carolina situation and say, all right, we're going to get rid of this map that's particularly bad for Republicans and the Pennsylvania map, which is really bad for Republicans, but keep the New York map in place and the California map, they will do that. And Roberts was explicitly outlining in the oral arguments how he would go about that because he was like, all right, like 
in North Carolina, there isn't a very specific provision that the courts are interpreting. They're just kind of using the general language of the Constitution, whereas in New York and places like California, there's a very specific law outlining partisan gerrymandering. So he's like, well, if the state Supreme Court has a very specific provision they're implementing, you know, we will defer to them. But if it's more general or not, they're just making shit up so that they can serve their party interests, which is my prediction is that's where they go with this. Very much like Bush v. Gore. I mean, Bush v. Gore- Exactly like Bush. And there's same shit. And a lot of these are members of the Bush v. Gore legal team Mm -hmm. or were sitting justices back then like Clarence Thomas. Like three members of this court were on the Bush v. Gore legal team. It is, I think, the only major Supreme Court decision that- contains language specifically excluding it uh, from being used as precedent. Like they yep. literally were like, we're, this is our decision. This is not to be used in any other case ever. <laughs> it's like we, we had a partisan outcome we were trying to get to. We got to it. Please don't, please don't use it to mess up, uh, you know, the law, um, which goes back to, you know, what we learned in law school, which is that bad facts make bad laws. And, and in this case, it's more like, Bad facts combined with bad intentions could create uh, bad laws. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on this. Obviously, we'll probably hear this decision in June, and I, I'm not expecting a great result here. This this court is out of control. It's a it's a partisan institution, and I think they'll show their colors on this case. All right. So that's something to be excited about, everybody. Um, <laughs> you know, there was lots of other. Uh, hey, look, if this was a downer for you, you're really going to want to listen next week uh, and the week after that, because next week we have uh, a really fun interview that I think you're going to enjoy. I know we're really looking forward to. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to do a year in review where we talk about mostly a lot of great things that happened this year. So we've got some exciting stuff for you over the next couple of weeks. As always, if there's anything in here that you want to comment on, you want to hear us comment on your comment about what we said in our commenting, uh, you can call us at 508-687-2589. You can leave us a voicemail uh, that we may play on the air and respond to, 508-687-2589. Alternatively, uh, if you want to take a shot at doing the same, but with an email, it's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com, m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, Adesua Agbanile, and Sarah Schley. Theme music provided by Kevin Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Ravi with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on what could go right? Available wherever you get your podcasts.